Let's see here. I'll chart you out today. Jim's not around. I'll start Psalm 119, verse 49. Let's see here. That's Zion. Remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. The proud have me in great derision, yet I do not turn aside from your law. I remembered your judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. Indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. This has become mine because I kept your precepts. Um, got uh, a devotional to read for 7 September, <laughs> if anybody isn't aware of it. Today is the anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, which ended up being the uh, the Great War that uh, a lot of a lot of people died. There was a lot of heartache, a lot of sadness, but it was really the time of America's ascendancy. And uh, it looks like that may be ending, but uh, with our current president, maybe we'll get a reprieve on that. We'll see what he can do for us. But uh, and oh, before I go on. I have a short. I want to thank my friend Tom Taylor. He sent this to me. It says, "This is the end." And if anybody ever saw the movie Apocalypse, now it's got the photo, and they sang the song, "This is the end." Well, anyway, he thought it was appropriate because we're we're getting pretty close to the end, and it's even more appropriate after what Trump did yesterday, our president, with uh, signing the uh, the uh, declaration that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Thank you, Mr. President. And uh, he did not move the embassy. Um, he signed the waiver again. But I think that's probably strategic. He can't just sign the waiver and say, we don't have a, a, a land yet. We don't have a building yet. I think they'll, yeah. So they're probably going to work on that. I don't know the details, but that's just my guess. But we'll go ahead and read December 7th devotional. God promised good things to come. Zechariah, a priest and prophet, was born in Babylonia and returned to Jerusalem in 538 B.C. He began prophesying in the late fall of 520 B.C. and received eight visions from God on February 15th of 519 B.C. A year and a half later, the exiles who returned from Babylon and settled in the city of Bethel sent a delegation to Jerusalem, wanting to know whether they should continue to fast each summer as they had in Babylonia on the anniversary of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. On December 7th of 518 BC, God gave the answer to their question to Zechariah. And he says there in the book of Zechariah, say to all your people and your priests, during those 70 years of exile, when you fasted and mourned in the summer and at the festival in early autumn, was it really for me that you were fasting? And even now in your holy festivals, you don't think about me, but only of pleasing yourselves. Isn't this the same message the Lord proclaimed through the prophets years ago when Jerusalem and the towns of Judah were bustling with people and the Negev and the foothills of Judah were populated areas? This is what the Lord Almighty says. Judge fairly and honestly and show mercy and kindness to one another. Do not oppress widows, orphans, foreigners, and poor people, and do not make evil plans to harm each other. Your ancestors would not listen to this message. They turned stubbornly away and put their fingers in their ears to keep from hearing. They made their hearts as hard as stone so they could not hear the law or the messages that the Lord Almighty had sent them by his spirit through the earlier prophets. 
That is why the Lord Almighty was so angry with them. Since they refused to listen when I called to them, I would not listen when they called to me, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them as with a whirlwind among the distant nations where they lived as strangers. Then another message came to me from the Lord. Now the Lord says, I am returning to Mount Zion, and I will live in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city. The mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. All of this may seem impossible to you now, a small and discouraged remnant of God's people. But do you think this is impossible for me, the Lord Almighty? You can be sure that I will rescue my people from the east and from the west. I will bring them home again to live safely in Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be faithful and just towards them as their God. Then finally came the specific answer to the question of the delegation from Bethel. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The traditional fasts and times of mourning you have kept in early, summer, midsummer, autumn, and winter are now ended they will become festivals of joy and celebration for the people of Judah. People from nations and cities around the world will travel to Jerusalem. People from many nations, even powerful nations, will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to ask the Lord to bless them. Reflection. In your opinion, are these final promises of powerful nations coming to Jerusalem to seek the Lord something that has already happened or events that will occur following the second coming of Christ during the millennium? What can you apply to your life from these words of God through the prophet Zechariah? And it finishes with Micah 4, verse 1. In the last days, the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem will become the most important place on earth. People from all over the world will go there to worship. And it's funny that uh, they cited that because it's exactly the verse that I was thinking of when I uh, woke up this morning after what Trump did and... Uh, our president and uh, his decision. And of course, it's going to lead to more disaster before that comes about. But he's uh, set things in motion. And uh, it's just another stepping stone towards uh, really great glory for the people of Israel. I heard on the radio coming here, not doing what he's done, that message. No, that's right. And that's what he said during his speech. He said, there's absolutely no point in not doing this because the status quo has not worked. And his uh, idea was that because this is now um, no longer an issue, because it's no longer an issue, we can focus on something else. Yeah. And so it, he's right. He's an intelligent guy. He's a, a, unfortunately, intelligence is a rare commodity in this world. And most of the people that see what he's doing don't have the intelligence to understand what he's doing. And so it will, it will certainly end in a type of disaster before things get better. But that's okay. The Lord is in control, and this is his world, and this was not a surprise to him for certain. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we uh, certainly thank you for the chance to come here and to study your word today, starting a new chapter in the book of Romans. And what a chapter indeed it is, and uh, it pertains directly to what we're talking about before we get started. And uh, Lord, we uh, would pray certainly for our president for the man that you have placed into this office, and he is a man for such a time as this, no doubt about that. We would pray that you would be with him and be a hedge of protection around him, keep him from the enemies of this world that uh, so desperately want to see him done with, and uh, help him to be a strong voice for this nation and for what's going on in the world, so that there will be a sense of reason when the rapture comes, people will understand uh, a bit more of the world because of his efforts, if possible. 
And uh, Lord, we have people to pray for. We pray for Paul and Elaine. It was good to see Elaine today. And uh, we pray that you will be with them and help them through their troubles. And we thank you for all of the people that are online right now. And we would pray for them. And uh, if they have anything in their heart or uh, life that is keeping them from happiness and joy, that you would fill them with that and help them to get through their trials and troubles. And uh, we pray for the people in the congregation here as well, and that you would do the same for them. And we thank you, Lord, for your kind hand of favor upon us. What a great God you are, and we just love you. We exalt you and we praise you. We thank you for this word, and we ask that you help us to handle it carefully and to uh, that the study will be a blessing. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, okay, so here we have um, Romans chapter 9. 9 through 11 is what? Anybody? Talking about the Israel. Israel. There you go. I mean, they, you know, the uh, the people are cut out, and they're going to be grafted back in, and blah, blah, blah. Grafted. I was and, looking for that word, and I couldn't get it. Well, there you go. We're, we're, we're getting into it now. Romans 9 uh, through 11 is exactly what's going on in the world right now. And uh, now if you, uh, we'll talk about it as we go through here. But um, it, it, they are verses that uh, certainly uh, have a lot of people uh, uh, completely different views and opinions on these verses. And they can read Romans 9 through 11. They can say, well, this is the church, and uh, the church has replaced Israel. How they can come to that conclusion in today's world, I cannot understand. I, I, I cannot. I, um, I, before we even get into Romans 9, this is something that I've talked about before, and I've mentioned this a few times, and uh, I don't think I've done it during the Roman study. Now, I may have, and if I have, I'm sorry about that, but it's okay, it's still interesting, is people are very, very down on Reformed theologians. They're very down on the church for having thought that they replaced Israel. And in today's world, I'm in complete agreement with them. But we want to research why did it come to that point? Why did it come to the point where the church thought that they had replaced Israel? That was never the intent of the writers of the New Testament. It was never the intent of the disciples and the apostles under Christ. They knew that there would be a reign of Christ, their Messiah, from Jerusalem, like the verse we just wrote about here, you know, and it says in Isaiah that the law will go forth from Zion. And these are things that they understood pertained to Israel. And so we have to say, why would the people of the church think that that was no longer the case. And there's a valid reason for it. There's a reason to not be upset at people in the past. And there's a reason to say, I comprehend what is going on. When Paul um, uh, says that something in part has happened to, to uh, Israel, blindness, okay? Well, the hardening as well, he hardened them, but I was thinking of the, the blindness verse. And the reason why is if Israel is blind, okay, and they have not come to Christ, there's a reason for that. If they had accepted Christ when he came, what would have happened? What would have been the result? The Gentiles would have been left out. There would have been no church age, and there would have been an immediate move from the Old Testament dispensation of the law right into the millennial reign of Christ, okay? Because he had been crucified, the law is fulfilled in Christ. So the millennial reign would have been enacted right away, we know that that wouldn't happen, though, because Daniel 9, 24 through 27 says that seven more years are for Israel. So looking back on these things, we can say, oh, I see that God knew this was going to happen, okay? And you look at all of the pictures that we've gone through in the Old Testament uh, sermons, picture after picture of the Gentiles actually taking over for a, a set amount of time, 
It doesn't matter if it was 10 days or if it was for 2,000 years. There's a Gentile element that we can look back in these pictures and say, I see that God knew this in advance, which is obvious. God knows these things. But if blindness in part has come upon Israel, and if Christ is not going to return until, or he's not going to set up his millennial kingdom, I should say, because return has a couple parts. It has the rapture. It has the, you know, the return of Christ and the setting up the millennial kingdom. But if um, Christ was not to return until the Jews had accepted Christ, what would every Christian be doing during the church age? They would be evangelizing the Jews because Christ isn't coming back until the Jews have called on Christ. And so their sole intent would be, so blindness in part has come upon Israel means that blindness in part has come upon that us too. That's right. It goes both ways. When we look through a murky mirror and somebody's looking through it from the other side, they're seeing murky as well. The Jews had no idea the Gentiles lost any concept of this very quickly. The whole church was, and we saw this in the book of Acts, the whole church started as what group of people? Jews. Jews. And we'll go there again. I, I cite these verses often, cite them often as, uh, under a different context, but this context here. This is an important thing to understand before we get into Romans 9 through 11. So it's not superfluous. This is important to understand why the church has read these verses and been so wrong about it. But under a different context, I read these verses. Uh, Christ was with them for 40 days in Acts chapter 1. Uh, he says, in a few days, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, 6 says, Acts 1, 6, therefore, when they had come together... These are Jews, not one Gentile, and not for a long time did the Gentiles come in. Not until Acts chapter 10 was it really considered. Of course, we had the exception of the, uh, the, uh, the uh, what do you call it, the eunuch of Candace, queen of Ethiopia. But uh, for the most part, the Gentile conversion did not happen until Acts chapter 10. Okay, so, um, and there's a reason why that Ethiopian was um, uh, converted first, is because the same order of the sons of that are of Noah, the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth is how they are listed in their order. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, even though Japheth is the elder, Shem is first, Ham, and then Japheth. And guess how the order of conversion was? Shem, descendants of the Jews. Ham, the queen of Candace. Okay, the eunuch of the queen of Candace, and then Japheth. Cornelius's house. And then there are all these various patterns that run through the book of Acts. If we had recorded that, people would have a lot better theology in the book of Romans right now. But I get a lot of questions, well, what about this and that from the book of Acts? And I have to keep telling them things that I wish were recorded because the, it took us three years to get through Acts and it was very detailed. And once you go through it, you understand it. I get that now. But anyway, the uh, Acts chapter 1 we have a group of people that are standing there on the Mount of Olives with Christ, and they were all Jews, okay? Their very last question to him was, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you, at this time, restore the kingdom to Israel? The church, the early church, the first church of all, thought that the millennial kingdom was coming. They were thinking are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were talking about the kingdom of David, which was promised to be a literal kingdom here on earth. Okay? Jesus did not correct them, did he? He did not say, you've misunderstood. There is going to be no literal earthly kingdom. It's going to be a church of spiritual people that are being built up into a body. He didn't tell them that. 
what he told them was the next words right out of his mouth. He said, and he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the father put in his own authority, but you shall receive power from when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, implying that the kingdom is coming, but it's a time and a season that you're not aware of. You are going to tell the whole world about this before that happens. Okay, does everybody understand that? Because that's as important as it can be, is that the early church thought that there would be a literal millennial reign of Christ, or a literal reign of Christ, not a millennial reign. We say the millennial reign. They were just thinking of a reign of Christ, that he would be the Messiah, he would sit on the throne, and it would last forever and forever and forever, according to Isaiah 9, 6, right, 7 and 8. So, um, and all of the other prophecies in the Old Testament as well. They were given to Israel, they were given to Israel, promising that there would be a kingdom. And as I cited, the law will go forth from Zion, what we just read here. And their question at the end of this was, has that been fulfilled or do you believe it'll be fulfilled in the future? It's obvious that those things that were said to Zechariah have never happened. Another one that I read, I think I read it last week or I read it in the Prophecy Update a week ago. Uh, I'm going to read it again just because it's something that it'll help you to understand before we get into Romans 9, what is going on here. It's the book of Amos. And it's the very last thing that he says in Amos. The very last words that he says to the people. He said, uh, Amos 9, verse 14, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. That happened after the Babylonian exile, didn't it? It's also happened now, okay? So maybe he's talking about the Babylonian exile and it's fulfilled. What does it say after that in verse 15? I will plant them in their land, Israel being planted in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Okay? Were they pulled up again after the Babylonian exile? Yes, in AD 70, they were exiled again. This cannot be speaking of the Babylonian exile. It cannot be. It cannot be speaking of any time up until the present day. It cannot. It's impossible. Or the word has failed. All right. And I've said it many times to you in this class that if that word fails and if Israel is extinguished from the face of the earth, as Iran says they're going to do, you can take this book and you can throw it away and you can go party up your life because we have absolutely no hope in this world. Without Jesus Christ, there's no hope. He is the fulfillment of the Lord of the Old Testament. He is Jehovah incarnate. And I must tell you that if that verse were to fail, which it will not, might as well just go party, folks. That's all I can tell you. You've wasted your life sitting in Bible class, but that will not happen. That has never been fulfilled. They are back in the land. We are being brought to this point. So now I've said that. The early church knew, based on verses like that, in an Isaiah, in Malachi, and all of these other verses, Micah, all these other um, uh, books of the Old Testament, promising promising to Israel that this was going to come. They knew that it would come, and they asked the Lord about it, and he didn't say it wasn't coming. He misunderstood. He said, don't worry about that now. You go do this thing, and so they did. These people went out and started doing this thing, and they kept getting rejection from who? From their own people. They were dispersed. They were ignored. They were murdered. They were by their own people, and finally, they started going to who? The Gentiles, and who took that message and just grabbed onto it? 
the Gentiles. They loved that message. It, 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 tell a Gentile that's never heard of Christ today, and what will he, what will he do? He'll embrace you, break down in tears and say, I know that there was this problem with me, and I know that it can be fixed, and I know that it is fixed, and it's because of the person you just told me about. I've spoken to people that could speak very little English, comprehending English, and they have come to Christ because of it, okay? People from foreign lands like Thailand, all right? My friends down here speak okay English, but not comprehending English. Not All you need to do is give them the simple gospel and explain what Christ did, and they got it. Okay, I have no doubt that the Gentile church has a very specific purpose in God's mind, but it is not the end of the deal, as replacement theologians will say. So they believe that the church, that the Christ is going to reign. They had that in mind. It wasn't working out. And so they started going to the Gentiles. The Gentiles received the message gladly. Eventually, the sign of Jonah, everybody remember what the sign of Jonah is? Jesus said, uh, the sign of Jonah, it is not the three days and three nights in the tomb, had nothing to do with that. The sign of Jonah was yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. A day for a year, it happens all the way through the Bible. 40 days for uh, punishment, 40 years walking in the wilderness and going on and on. A day for a year, it happens all the way through the Bible. Ezekiel 4, the prophecy that pinpointed when Israel would be back in the land in uh, May 1948 and when they would recapture Jerusalem in June 7th of 1967, a day for a year from the prophecy in Ezekiel 4. A day for a year is the the standard that the Bible uses, okay? When he said the sign of Jonah, it was a day for a year, 40 days, 40 days um, uh, of, no, what's his name, Jonah's proclamation equaled 40 years, and then Israel was destroyed. It was 5 August of AD 70, which was 40 years later after his ministry okay and they were exiled okay it's actually you'd have to take the beginning of the ministry and then the crucifixion would be about 38.8 years uh something i i, I don't have the dates in my head right now and I'll, i can lay it out for you but anyway um so it's a 40-year time frame and they were exiled okay so that was the sign of jonah in the meantime god had not wasted any effort as they're getting ready to be exiled he had already prepared the gentiles to receive the message because of the jews telling them that and that is found in what books of the bible romans and then uh, 1 corinthians and 2 corinthians and galatians and ephesians and philippians and colossians and all of the uh, 13 books of paul okay that is where it's recorded. That is the church age. It's sandwiched in there for a reason. The structure of the Bible shows us a picture of redemptive history. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and watch the earlier Roman sermon or uh, Bible studies, and you'll see that. The redemptive history is actually the structure of what God has done is recorded in the Bible. Okay, so we have the church age. We have the early church believing in a literal millennial kingdom. The church took over, I'm sorry, the Gentiles took over the church, and that slowly began to ebb away. Now, why would that be? Because they're Gentiles. They're not kingdom people. They don't understand that kingdom means a literal kingdom, okay? The Jews are exiled. There's three of them in Bosnia. There's six of them in China. There's two of them over there in Japan. There's 15 of them down there in Buenos Aires, right? I'm making an example. But they were all over the world, and they were in little teeny pockets. There was no chance at all. There was no chance that they would ever become a group of people again. The Gentiles could not conceive it. 
As a matter of fact, you read some of the writings of the older scholars that assumed that the church had replaced Israel, and they said they're out, and they talk about it in great detail. So what is the natural result of having no Jewish people and no Israel? Because along with the Jewish people, what was the land of Israel like? It was utterly destroyed. It was laid waste. We've talked about it a little bit. I'll talk about it a little bit more. The Romans went in there in AD 70, and they built siege ramps and uh, uh, siege equipment against every city of the Jews that was in the land. What do you build those things out of? Cut down all the forests. You cut down the forests in order to build your siege works. They cut down everything in the land. There were trees for miles, and all of a sudden there were no trees at all. Okay? The Bible in the Old Testament speaks of the former and the latter rains. Two rains a year so that the land would be nourished and that the trees and crops would grow. Right? Well, once they did that, the entire ecological system of Israel was destroyed. And they would get a rain during the year, and it would be the uh, the former rains, okay? There would be no latter rains. And so there was just desert and barrenness. But when it did rain, because as I said during the prophecy update a couple weeks ago, the Nile River would wash the sand down from, you know, Ethiopia and all the way through the land of Egypt, and all of that came in, and it went up the Mediterranean because the Mediterranean swirls this way. If you look at the, the uh, maps of the... Uh, the, uh, what do you call it, the ocean currents. It goes right by Israel. It carried all that sand up there. It blocked off the rivers. The rivers stopped flowing. And so when you have blocked off rivers, you have swamps. That's right, marshes. Just like that Sergio Rhoda's video, right? That was all of Israel. It was either complete devastation of barrenness and desert and desertification, or it was swamps, and there was nothing else. It was just a completely wasted land, okay? And so you've got all of this this stuff, like what Sergio and Rhoda were at, or what the Everglades used to be like before the Army Corps of Engineers went in and drained everything, and now they have crops down there, they've got farms, and they've got this great soil, right? Okay, that was Israel. And along with those type of things, you have what? You've got dysentery, you've got typhus, you've got um, malaria, because swamps breed mosquitoes, right? And then it's the hottest place on earth during the summer, if you've ever been to Israel, right? It's hot, it's nasty. So you've got the swamps, you've got this, nobody lived there, okay? I don't want to get into the Fakistinian lie tonight, but you know what? I read some uh, commentaries and I saw a video today of uh, a guy, Ibn Hafmad Mashal, whatever, from uh, 15, oh, uh, I'm sorry, 532, or no, it was, uh, what was the year? I don't want to give the wrong one. It was uh, 15 something. He was a part of like the Ottoman Empire or something. And he said, the Jews outnumber us in the land of Israel, even back then. And they went through a study of it. And every single time that is recorded, there's always been more Jews than anybody else in the land of Israel. And there weren't many Jews. They were in little pockets, but they've always been in the majority there. All of these other people are in the minority, and they were completely unproductive people. Read Innocence Abroad by, by Mark Twain, and he'll tell you what type of people they were. You walk up by them, and the first thing they say is, Baxis, Baxis, they want money, and they're beggars, and they're, they, there was just nothing going on. The land was devastated, okay? You said who would want it. What's that? You said who would want it. Yeah, who would want it? Nobody wanted it. It was under the Ottoman Empire. They owned it, but nobody wanted to be there. And so when the Jews, finally the Zionist movement started uh, coming back, uh, and people were saying, we're going to go back into Israel, they bought it from the Ottoman Empire at exorbitant rates. 
the Ottomans thought these stupid Jews are going to buy this crummy land and we might as well milk it out of them. They bought the land. We'll get into that in a minute. In the meantime, the land is completely devastated. No rivers flowing out. There's very little life in there and what life is in there is not productive. Okay, but the Jews wanted to remain there and the few people that were there were begging off the Jews and any travelers that went through. But that was it. Okay, so the commentaries of these scholars from the Reformation and, you know, that uh, throughout the church age were saying, there's no Israel people. They're all over the world. Okay, they're in little pockets and they're not a combined group of people. They, they celebrated the same as Jews did everywhere, which is kind of amazing, but they didn't, they, they weren't, you speak Chinese, you speak, they, there was no cohesion among the, the Jewish people. Okay, none. So there's never going to be a Jewish group again, and there is nothing worth fighting over in the land of Israel, except for the religious nuts that want to say, we own the land of God, right? And so there you had those people, but there was nobody else there, and nobody ever thought the land would be productive again. Read their commentaries, go back and do the research. So you now have two things, no Israel people, no Israel land, and yet you have something that is in your possession now that says that all of these promises are going to come about. The desert is going to flow with water and there's going to be the flowers and all of these things, right? This book made promises that had never, never been fulfilled. And they, what do you do when there's no Jewish people and there's a land that obviously will never have that happen to it? What do you do? Allegorize. You allegorize it. Just like we do with the book of Daniel at times and the book of Revelation, we have to say, well, that is obviously symbolic or that is obviously allegorical, just like parts of the Psalms. You know, it, the, the easiest example is the mountains clapping their hands. They don't. So that's anthropomorphic. You've got all these different types of uh, literature and genres of uh, literature in the Bible. Okay. Well, obviously, because that never happened, it must be allegory. The Lord is using an allegory of the land of Israel, doing all these things that he's promised, and actually it belongs to us because we know the Jews are out, and it didn't happen in the land, so it is us. It is our spirit that's being put around the earth, and the waters are, you know, and they start saying that the waters are the Holy Spirit, and there it's going to the Gentiles all over. Does everybody understand that? There is a valid reason why that happened. There is a valid reason, and the Lord gave Israel blindness in part, he gave the Gentiles blindness in part. So we cannot hold them at fault unless, unless somebody was to say, I just can't accept that this is not literal. And there are very few people that would do that. Like I said, if everybody thought that that was literal, they would be out evangelizing the Jews. That would have been the one mission of the church, okay? But there were very few people that could have had the foresight even further, we look back and we were very smug about how stupid people were during the time of the Reformation and, it, you know, during the time of the Catholic, you know, when the Catholic Church was the big deal, okay? We're smug about it. Why? Because everybody in this room right now and everybody online has 10 of these in their house. They can go online and they can read it in 15 different versions. And we have uh, the Bible that plays on the radio. And sometimes you turn on the TV and somebody is talking about the Bible, right? We have all of that at our disposal, okay? There's not been a time in our life that we did not have access to this book. Well, it wasn't just until 
couple hundred years ago at best that people had regular access to this book and even then they were expensive so a family might have one right and it was written in ye old king james english and nobody understood it right it's the only translation you got so of course you got a problem we look back and we say how utterly stupid they are when they were just they were at the behest of the scholars who had written the commentaries who obviously had read all of the old past commentaries and they had built on church history and so we have something that we can be smug about but if we were in their position i don't think anybody in this place unless they read the bible 24 hours a day would have ever thought that israel would be israel again and plus another thing that they didn't have all they had you're in um uh romania right now right how many jews are in your town two right that's it that's the only jewish presence you know if you don't have a telephone to call up your friends and they start whining about the stupid jews down the road right there's none of that there was no communication you went to another town you might have said oh there's a jew there too and that's it you know and you might have gone to another town once in your life most people just there was none of what we have today and so we cannot put our current situation into what has happened in the past. All we can do is say that we are trained in our churches that there is promises in the Old Testament and they pertain to the church and we say, okay. And if you wanna know that's true, go over to the Jehovah's Witness today and ask them if they believe that Jesus is God, right? They have all the information that we have and they have it in abundance on TV and on radio and they don't believe it, why? Because they are at the behest of the people that train them. Every congregation, unless the people are wise, are totally captivated by the person that's training them. What you should do is, because we have it available to us, is to read commentaries and to read our Bible and then to listen to other people and to make sure that what you listen to makes sense. Because right now, what I'm saying to you may make sense, but when you get the second opinion, as the proper proverb says, all of a sudden you say, well, he makes sense too. Now I'm the one that has the burden of figuring out which is correct. Lord, I am asking you personally through prayer to keep me from a false teacher or from a wrong doctrine. But people didn't have that in the past. They had one church in a town, and that was it. And like I said, you go back 200 and some years, and they had what was called chained to the pulpit. I know Burke knows. Does anybody else know what that means? Yeah, the Bible. They had one Bible for a town, maybe. Maybe. They were very, very, very expensive to make. They were handwritten. They... People would do gilded pages on them. It would take years to make a Bible. It would be like today, if you go to a Jewish synagogue, they will have the Ark, which is the Torah, right? The Torah scroll. And they are tens of thousands of dollars to make these things. It takes years to make them. And some small synagogues don't have their own. So what do they do? They borrow one from another synagogue when they're open, okay? Or when they have a... a um, uh, uh, what do you call it out bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah or whatever they will actually call every synagogue around and say do you have one that you will lend us because most of them won't do it because it's so valuable they chained the bible to the pulpit so nobody got to read the bible except the guy that was behind the pulpit and usually if it was you know after a certain amount of time the catholic church they were really really bad bible people the the perversion had already gotten into the catholic church things had devolved it was chaos It was absolute chaos in the church. There is no reason to blame the people of the past that they thought that the church had replaced Israel. No reason at all. Okay? I'm adamant about that. There's no reason to say they should have known. 
how could they know? They didn't have a Bible they could read. They had somebody telling them what the Bible said. That was it, okay? Unless you owned your own Bible and you read it and read it and were just willing to say, okay? But then what happens? The Bible starts getting more. You start getting different versions. You start getting people interested in it. You have the ability. And all of a sudden, what happens? People like John Darby and Schofield start reading it. And they're saying, wait a minute. This isn't speaking about the church at all. And what did people do? They said they're a bunch of heretics. That's dispensationalism. That's a lie from the devil because we are the church. Why do you think the Pope is so adamant yesterday speaking against our president's decision? Why do you think he did that? It's because they still to this day do not want to admit that there is a plan and a purpose for Israel in the land. That is an aberration. We have proclaimed now for 2,000 years that we are it and that this is the church that is being spoken of, and if they were to admit that was wrong, then all of their supposed infallibility is wrong as well. You can see where that goes. And so they tell their people, you're not to agree with Israel. We're going to stand with the Pakistanians. We're going to go. Everybody see what's going on here? Okay. The dispensationalists come out and they start talking about these things and they start writing commentaries and they didn't care that people thought they were heretics. They started the Zionist movement. Christian Zionism is what got the Jews impelled to go back. I'm sure there were Jews that wanted to go back all along, but did they for 2000 years? No. Every year they would say, every single year at the Passover, what would they say? That's right. Next year in Jerusalem, they'd raise up their wine cup and they'd their final toast would be next year in Jerusalem. And it was just a pipe dream. They never were going to do it. But then all of a sudden, the world starts having steamships. It has ability for people to travel. And so Christian Zionists start saying, he ain't coming back until the Jews receive Christ. And what do they start doing? They start impelling the Jews to go back to the land. We'll help you. We'll support you in this endeavor, right? It was a united effort between Jew and Gentile that understood what was going on, that the Jews, the miracle of the Jews would happen, right? It is because there was no land for them to go back to. But they said, this is our homeland. It's our birthright. There are Jews back there. And they say, come on back and we'll be friends together and we'll receive you. And so what do they do? As I said, they start buying the land from the Ottoman Empire. Didn't matter that they paid a lot of money for it. They didn't care. They went back there and what happened? They worked themselves to death. They died by the bucketful of typhus and malaria and all of these diseases, but they would come from Australia and they knew that the trees in Australia would suck water up out of swamps, right? Eucalyptus trees, I've stood under them that are this big that were planted 150, 200 years ago, whenever, not 200, probably 100 and some years ago, 150 now. Anyway, when the Zionist movement was starting, they're giant. Why? Because they planted them in a swamp and now there's no swamp, but those things suck up the water just like they did with the Everglades. You go down there to this day and you've got the punk trees and the eucalyptus and all these things. They suck up the water and as soon as it hits the, the leaves and you've got the arid winds blowing all over Israel, what happens? The leaves let out the water. And so they just keep pumping water. They're just giant pumps. It, it, nowadays we do it with metal. They did it with trees. And those swamps were drained but they did it at the expense of their lives, okay? The swamps were drained. And so what happens when you drain a swamp? You got 15 feet of topsoil. They've got the most precious land on the planet because they went in and did what nobody in the land ever did. So this fakistinian lie is absolutely that it is a lie. 
the Jews went in there, they did this. And then when all of these things started to get really nice and people were planting orange trees, I've seen the orange groves in Israel. They're for miles. Banana trees on the side of hills, right? What happens when somebody makes something in America and they want it, right? I don't want to work for it. And that's why we have, what is on that door right there? It's right up above the handle. What is it? It's called a lock. Because we have something, and if we don't lock it, somebody will come in and take it, right? That's what uh, human nature. I don't want to work for it. I want what you have, and you took it from me anyway. And that's the Democrats through and through. I mean, that's it, right? You look at the Democrat Party, somebody goes out and they actually do something productive, and then they say, you stole that from us, and they tax it out of you. Well, that is exactly what they did to the Jewish people. Everybody got this? Is there any question on what I've been talking about? Okay, so this is what's been going on. The church could not have conceived of this. They're busy in their own lands. They're the Gentiles. They don't need to go down to Israel. They've got fertile land all over the world. They've got peace or they get, you know, uh, uh, black death and so they move over here. And then they have a potato farming and they move to America. But they ain't going to a barren place when they have places they can go to. The Gentiles are doing their own thing. They're uninterested in that down there. The Jews are not uninterested next year in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem, and then you start getting support on that idea, and you start getting the idea that we might be able to go back there, that's what happened, okay? So blindness in part to Israel, blindness in part to the Gentiles. They could not conceive of it. Please don't send commentaries to me about how bad the church was for all those years. They had no idea. Once again, remind you, they didn't have this except one in a town maybe, Nobody read it. They were told theology, and they accepted it, and that was that. Okay, so up until the time when these things became more and more common, more and more taught, more and more trusted once again that this is literal and not allegorical, and then the movement started, and then the Jews started moving back, and then dispensationalism was re 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 realized. I don't want to say it was realized. It was re-realized. Why? Who was the first dispensationalist? Does anybody know who it was? Jesus. He was the first dispensationalist. He's the one that set down the dispensations of time. Who was the second dispensationalist? Paul. He wrote the words inspired by the Holy Spirit. He was a dispensationalist. There's no doubt about it, right? If you read the Bible, there is no doubt about it. Unless you are in a Reformed church or in the Catholic Church, or in one of the churches that said, we're here, I could read you the quote, I've got it over here, I've read it before from R.C. Sproul. He says, where are the Jews? Here we are. He claimed that he's a Jew. Why? Because he was taught Reformed theology, and he believes what he was taught. His error for not checking, because he, unlike those people in the past, is without excuse. He saw Israel in his lifetime reestablished as a nation. He saw in his lifetime that Jerusalem was recaptured. He has seen Israel do what the Bible said it would do. Because pride, pride steps in, and when you say, I'm not wrong, that's where you are wrong. What does he say about? He says they're the Jews. That's it. That's what I'm saying. He does not, he is not willing to step back and say, I could have been wrong on this issue because that, that's the pride of the human heart. That's why when I do these sermons and I say it every week, I take everything that I know and I put it off to the side. And I almost made that mistake not doing that with the Day of Atonement sermons. 
And finally, by the time I got to the third one, I realized I have been wrong on this and I had to go back and rethink the entire thing. And it, it came out exactly as it should have. When I went into the last of the feasts of the Lord, which I typed this week, Monday, it was on the uh, the final feast, which is um, Help Me Out Tabernacle, Sukkot, okay? I went in thinking something. I said, I'm not going to put that in my head, and I'm so glad I didn't, because there is so much rich treasure in the Feast of Tabernacles, you're not going to believe it. But when somebody is told, well, the feasts of the Lord, the fall feasts are yet to be fulfilled, they believe it. So when I said that, I've said it in several prophecy updates, people have sent me their, their uh, well, obviously you don't know what you're talking about, listen to this video. I said, I don't need to. I don't need to listen to it because I've read every possible commentary on that wrong doctrine. I know that it's wrong, and I was taught that it was correct doctrine when I first heard it. But I've read the Bible enough to know that it is incorrect. The feasts of the Lord are fulfilled. That's right. How do we know that? Because it says it in Hebrews like 27,000 times. <laughs> fulfilled, obsolete. If they're not fulfilled, and I'm going to say that at the beginning of the sermon this Sunday, he is not the Messiah. And the law isn't fulfilled, and we're all condemned because we're still under the law. Okay, so you understand that just because somebody is really intelligent, really, really intelligent, they will not change their doctrine if they think that they were taught properly. They've got all these great scholars of years past. They can't be wrong. John Calvin can't be wrong, right? It's impossible. I, I've been teaching John Calvin for 20 years. That dispensationalism, they don't even bother. You see, don't, don't question them. Just understand that they are wrong because they are unwilling to change. Pride steps in and they say, I'm not going to listen to that. All you need to do is go and read the, the prophecy of Ezekiel 4, which says the days are going to be fulfilled. And then you get out your calendar and say, my gosh, the two match. I must be wrong. But they're not willing to do that. They will not even look at those prophecies because they already have it in their head. The people before our time, I completely understand. No Israel, no Israel. I'm talking about the people and the land. And so the Bible told us that these things would happen, that this would be something that would happen. And that sets the stage, sorry, after 45 minutes, that sets the stage for Romans 9 through 11. Why do people read these and come to completely different conclusions? Like Galatians 6, where it says the Israel of God, you know that verse, right? And they say, well, that's, that's obviously speaking of the church. It's nothing to do with the church. The Israel of God is the Jews that have accepted Christ. Paul understood that as well as anybody. It has, we are never, never called Israel. We are grafted into Israel, but we are never called Israel in the church. Paul is going to confirm that with his own mouth in the book of Romans and elsewhere. Okay, That is why it is so important to understand what has been and where we are today when we get into Romans 9 through 11. Because when you get done, I would hope that you would go and watch other commentaries or read other commentaries on Romans 9 through 11 and say, well, Charlie said this, and I'm going to see if that's correct, because they're going to make a completely different conclusion than I am. 100% opposite with the same verses. They'll say that Israel is not, they are not in, we are Israel, we are the Jews, they're going to come out with all of that, and you're going to have to decide, is that correct or is it not? Where does your doctrine stand? It's very important to know these things, okay? I was trained under both of these, okay, and actually neither, because before I ever really listened to anything about dispensationalism, anything, I had read this probably 50 times, right? I read it every week for two years, once a week for two years. And, you know, I started listening to Hal Lindsey, and I'd also listened to the Seventh-day Adventists, because they were on Sunday morning as well, and or 
Yeah, Sunday morning. And um, uh, all of them. I, I listened to Benny Hinn. I didn't care how bad somebody was. I wanted to know. Yeah, I know. You know, I, it was obvious. My mother, there she is. She came in late today, but she is here. My mother, my brother, and I all watched Benny Hinn, and we all came to exactly the same conclusion at exactly the same time. This guy is, he is... He is out for himself, right? He is not a true teacher, etc. Okay, but we all watched him. We were all curious. We all met the Lord within about a month of each other without ever talking to each other. Okay, the Lord just okay, but I watched everything. But I did that long after I'd read this, and so I could say, Well, that is not correct, and I know it's not. That's why I left the Jehovah's Witness after just two or three months. Uh, yeah, I was just like. I'm sitting there, and the only reason why I went there is because I had never seen this book opened in a church in my life. Did they ever open this at St. Boniface growing up? Never. It, it, this was unheard of, okay? And so I saw the Jehovah's Witnesses reading their Bible, and I thought, oh, they, they must be telling the truth because I've been reading the Bible, and I know this is the Word of God, so I'm going to go there. And I kept going, and I kept thinking, that's not what that says. You know, and they'd come over to my store, and we'd talk, and I'd be like, that's not what that says. It, oh, of course, that's what the elders say. I don't care what the elders say. What does this say, right? People will be set in their doctrine unless they are willing to read this book and then say, I'm going to trust the Lord and especially pray, especially pray, Lord, do not let me be led down the path by a deceiver. You, you need to do that because James 3.1 says what? Go ahead. Brethren, let not many of us become teachers knowing that you shall receive the stricter judgment, right? That's a little bit of a misquote, but that's what, and I knew you knew that. I just, I, I pulled you off too quickly. Okay, so I am going to receive, because I'm teaching tonight, I'm going to receive a stricter judgment. Does that negate that you're going to be judged for your doctrine? Not at all. You can't say, well, Charlie told me. Okay, the people in the past may be able to get away with that because the Bible was chained to the pulpit and it was the only Bible in the town. They may be able to have an excuse. I don't know. But I can tell you that you will have no excuse when you stand before the Lord because you have the same number of hours a day that I have and the same number of hours that everybody else has. How much TV do you watch a day? Be honest with yourself. Don't tell me. How much time do you spend doing this and that during the day? Okay, somebody uh, sent me a letter and they said, Oh, was it a post on Facebook? Something just today, and they said, I, it was a post. And they said, I'm so thankful. I have like five hours a day to read the Bible. And it wasn't because I commented. I said, woohoo. I, I, I'm so happy that some people are willing to say, I'm going to dedicate this part of my life instead of watching TV to this book, right? How much time do you eat? Because you can read this while you're eating, folks, all right? Or you can listen to it on the radio. How much time do you drive every day? Because you get an audio Bible and you plug it in the radio, and I've got to tell you what, when you have that audio Bible, you can listen to it. And in 30 minutes, you're going to drive 15 minutes to work and 15 minutes back, you'll be done in 154 days. If you drive 30 minutes to work, you're going to have an hour a day. You can have it done in 72 and a half days, right? Because an audio Bible is 77 hours long. There is no excuse to not know this book again and again and again. We were talking about before the class. If I stop reading it or when I do read it and I get back to the book that you know, from Isaiah to Isaiah, and I get to Isaiah, which I'm in right now in the morning reading. It's like I've never read it before. And I've read it dozens of times. And yet it's like I've never read it before. It's as fresh and new as the day, right? The sun comes up. This is just as new. You will never get tired of reading this book if you start reading this book. 
Okay, and I understand. I get up in the morning and I read it. It's the very first thing I do after taking out two of my dogs and making coffee. I sit down and I start reading the Bible. And there are times where I think, I didn't learn anything. I just, I, I was brain dead through the whole reading. That's not true. I am absorbing something. My eyes are going over it. My mind may be still waking up, but I am absorbing something. And the last thing I do before I go to bed at night is read that book. I'm not telling you to, I'm not trying to get you to feel convicted about this. I just want you to read this book. Yes. The beauty of the thing, though, is if you determine, when I first started doing it, I only determined like five or ten minutes a night. And it's never enough. Well, what happens to you, um, some of the boring parts, the parts that, <laughs> the difficult parts. And the Leviticus and some yes. of those, you know. Well, like, that's because you don't come to this church and you don't listen to Leviticus sermons. <laughs> I can't tell you how many people email me and they say, I have never found so much Christ in my life as the book of but Leviticus, the, right? Okay, I, I'm just kidding you, though. Five minutes becomes will 30. stretch out. That's right. And you will ponder and meditate on it. All day. And really, instead of trying to race through it and get through it, that's the better way. I think, that, that's right. It and to With, think about it. And that's really, right. You just yeah. meditate. I will meditate on your word. The 119th Psalm. I wake, I, uh, I wake up in the night watches. I meditate on your word. And at um, uh, midnight, I rise to give thanks to you. Whenever I wake up at midnight, you know what I do? I give thanks to the Lord because of that verse. Okay. We've got the stage set. We've got 35 minutes left of this class. We're going to get into Romans 1 now. But does everybody understand how important it is for you yes. to read the Bible and for you to not just trust me, but to go read other commentaries and listen to them? Okay? It is your responsibility that you have your doctrine. All right? How you doing there today, Nicole? You okay? You came in late. You missed the best part of the class, and since then we've just been, you know, anyway. Yeah. Everything all right? How's your hubby? Please tell him I said hi. Okay, here we go. Romans 9, verse 1. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Anybody have something kind of yes. divergent from that? My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so it's, it's close, but it's a little different. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. Okay, after eight, eight detailed chapters concerning deep theological and doctrinal truths, chapter nine suddenly turns in a new direction. The state of the Jewish people in the world and their status before God at Paul's present and into the future. This discourse will continue through chapter 11. Thank you. After this section will come Paul's exhortations to the church in Rome to close out the book. Because of the seemingly unrelated nature of Romans 9 through 11, it is called a parenthesis in the book. But the importance of Israel as a people is an integral part of what God is doing in human history. Everybody understand that parenthesis? He's talking about one thing which is important. He talks about another thing which is important. And then we have this little thing in here which is just kind of glossed over. Absolutely not. It may be a parenthesis in the subject matter, but it is not a parenthesis in its importance. It is as important in the world today as anything that is happening. You think that the nukes going off possibly from North Korea are, are, are important. Not nearly as important what's going on in Israel today. Okay? That is the center of the world's attention, and it will continue to be that way, and it will grow. Okay? North Korea may cause a lot of trouble, and they have uh, great nuclear technology. Iran does not yet have it. 
Iran has been developing missiles for quite a while, and these guys are just on the upswing with missiles. Guess what? They have been sending delegates to one another. And obviously, we'll give you this and we will give you that is going on. There's no doubt. So they're causing a trouble, but they are causing more trouble with Iran because Iran is developing nuclear weapons, whether our insane United Nations believes it or not, the Atomic Energy Agency. They are, and Israel will have to deal with it. They must deal with it, okay? They dealed with it with Iraq in the 1980s. They went in and they destroyed the nuclear reactor, and that was the end of their nuclear attempts. Israel will have to deal with it one way or another, okay? It is the most important thing in the world that is going on right now is in Israel with the Jewish people, and it is bearing on Romans 9 through 11, okay? It is that important. The Church Age, also known as the dis dispensation of grace. grace thank you okay yes that it's the, the, the gentiles but it's the dispensation of grace will not continue forever rc sproul it will not okay we are not ushering in the kingdom we're not making the world better any doofus can open up the newspaper they can turn on the tv or they can simply look out their own door and see that the world is not getting better it is getting Worse, thank you. That's okay. Theology. Yeah, and I wasn't calling R.C. Sproul a doofus. I was saying in general, anybody, anybody, but yes, it's Presbyterian theology. Anybody that thinks that the world is going to get better until it's so good that Christ is willing to return is insane. Insane, okay? It's not going to happen, all right? Depending on how you interpret the rest of the Bible, and especially Israel's status, your expectation of what will occur after the church age is going to be completely different than someone who perceives Israel's future role differently. As I said, we've got these two major camps and a thousand subdivisions of this is coming and this is coming. Go watch the Job's Witnesses and they're going to tell you something. Go watch the Seventh-day Adventists and they're going to tell you something. All of these different subsections of supposed Christianity are coming at the Bible and they're saying this is going to happen. This is. Let me tell you what. They all can't be right. We can all be wrong. But we cannot all be right. Only one can be right if that's the case, or everybody is wrong, but not everybody can be right. And you've got a million different views on what's coming. So it's important to understand that you should be watching and checking these things out. I do not recommend you watch the Job's Witnesses or go to their, I do not recommend you go to the Seventh-day Adventists, okay, certainly. Or any liberal church like the Church of Christ or the Methodists or the Episcopals, don't go to any of those, okay? You're wasting your time and you're just going to turn into a fruit loop. Okay, but normal thinking churches, sorry, hey, just came off the head, sorry. Anyway, um, but any normal churches that will teach something about the integrity of the Bible, the infallible nature of the Bible, you're going to have different camps in it. Okay, R.C. Sproul teaches that. He really believes that the Bible is inerrant, infallible. He's coming at it completely different than we are. Okay, but these other churches don't even believe that the Bible is actually real or they insert themselves into the scenario like the Jehovah's Witnesses. And so it's wrong from the start, okay? So don't go to any of those, but you want to go out and watch somebody online from Calvary Chapel or you want to watch somebody online from uh, a mainstream, non-left-leaning Presbyterian church, you're going to learn something. Linda always says to me, why do you read R.C.'s Prophets? Because I learned something. I also learn what's incorrect because I've read this and now I can process why it is wrong by reading what they're saying. 
okay? I love reading Table Talk magazine every single day. I learn something either positive or negative, but I learn something every day, and that's why I do it. So I understand that I get frustrated, I, I yell at it, I circle things, and I, I uh, but I'm learning something when I'm doing that, and that's valuable is to know what other opinions are about this book. I read... Um, I'll give you a list of the people I read every single sermon that I do. I read every one of these people. I read all of, um, uh, what's the name, uh, Ellicott, uh, Charles Ellicott. I read um, Joseph Benson. I read Matthew Poole. I read John Gill. I read Adam Clark. I read Kyle and DeLeach. I read um, uh, the Pulpit Commentary. I read the Cambridge Commentary. Um, uh, I'm forgetting somebody, one or two more. I read every word of what they say for every verse that I do. And sometimes I don't agree with any of them. You remember the Jonah sermons. I didn't agree with any of them, not any of them. I even apologized before I got up there and I said, if you don't trust me on this, that's fine because nobody has taught what I teach at the end of the book of Jonah. Nobody, okay? But I would not teach it unless I believed that it was true. And I said that in advance so that nobody thought that I was trying to just have something new out there. That wasn't my intent. My intent was, this, this is what I believe the book of Jonah says, honestly, and but none of those commentaries said that. But Young's literal translation of the Bible did have one verse which led me in that direction, which was different than every other translation. And it was, it was marvelous when I read that, and I went to Sergio, and I said, can you confirm this? Of course, that's exactly what it says. He says that these all, others are all wrong. And that's when I realized the last chapter of Jonah is completely different than what you may think. And that's, it was wonderful that I read Young's translation, not his commentary, his translation, okay? But, all right, um, a dispensation of grace, the Bible, and especially Israel's status, you will have your expectation. In other words, is God through with Israel? That's the question that we need to ask when we're reading Romans 9 through 11. Has the church replaced Israel? I gave you sure reasons why they believed it, okay? And anybody here that says, well, that's not valid, hasn't thought it through. Because if there's one Bible in a town, of course people could believe that. If there's no telephones to talk to other people about theology, if there's no TV to see what's going on in the world, if there's no transportation to get you out of 20 miles of where you were born, all of those things are thrown right out the window. All you have is what you were taught, and that is it, okay? So it is completely understandable, and it's not only understandable, it is completely predictable, it is completely predictable. And all of a sudden, the Lord inspires Gutenberg at a certain point in history to make the printing press. And then after that, he inspires this person to improve on it. And this person, everything is coming to a fulfillment because the Lord is opening people's minds. And you know what it is? It's people. It's Christian people that were searching out God. What was it? Johannes Kepler. Science is thinking God's thoughts after him right? Science is thinking God's thoughts after him. That's why these Christians were scientists. It's because they said, God, we believe this book. That's why when you have Islam, you have this many Nobel Prizes in anything except the ones they give you just to say, we need to give them something. So they give them one in literature, right? They have zero in any of the disciplines, chemistry or, or um, medicine or anything, zero. And the Jews have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and they're the smallest portion of people on the planet. It's because they are steeped in the fact that there is a God and he holds us accountable, right? That's what their culture teaches. Even if they don't believe it, they're steeped in that from their culture. And then the Christians came along and they did the same thing. 
and we have sold our birthright in Christianity in the past hundred years. Non-Christians are inventing AI. They're inventing Google, YouTube, and so we're the ones that are going to be barred from Google very soon. And my, my videos are all going to be barred very soon because they're going to say, we don't want that on here, right? Because we have sold our birthright of being the innovators, okay? That's what's going on in the world right now. But all of this was known by God. One thing after another, people pursuing the Lord, people doing at certain points in history, which would bring to its end at the exact moment that the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So history is moving. God is in control of it. And then there's going to be a day when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in and we're going to be gone. And the whole world is going to devolve. The whole world is going to devolve. And it's not because it's out of control and God can't handle it. Like, you know, the people over in California, we were talking, Darla and I, uh, the California. It's sad because there are Christian people that are being burned as well as the, the people out there. But it is judgment. There's no doubt that it's judgment. They've been going through this now for three or four years. But we are not exempt from that. But this is going on in the world. I got to go on. Um, uh, is God done with Israel? Has he, the church replaced Israel? Is there still a plan and a purpose for the people of Israel? What is correct and how can we tell? The only way we can tell is by reading this and asking the Lord to show us. And I got to tell you what, if you trust in your own emotions about something, you're going to be wrong. You're going to be wrong. The emotions are the shallowest part of the human being. You know, somebody emailed me the same question I've gotten many times. I got it yesterday. What's going to happen to our dogs when we get raptured? And my standard answer, the Bible is not about the redemption of animals. It's about the redemption of man. We can trust that the Lord is fully capable of taking care of the issue. All right. It's not something that we should even be worrying about. And I see that once in a while, somebody will ask that on a Christian discussion board. What's going to happen to my my pets when I die? And you know what the answer is? Every post below that. The first two words. I think. I think every one of them. I think I think I think it doesn't matter what we think. It is irrelevant. If this book doesn't say it, then don't say it. Okay, you you know what? When you watch a Billy Graham sermon, what does Billy Graham say at least 50 times during one of his crusades? The Bible says. The Bible says. If the Bible doesn't say it, it is I think. And if it's I think, it is irrelevant. I don't care what your emotions have to say about your dog. The Lord will take care of your dog in the way that he sees fit. What he is concerned about is the human soul. That's why he wrote this book. It's not written in bow wow and rough rough. It is written in human language. Okay? So when people email me, I'm never angry with them. I understand their emotions, but do not base your theology on emotions. Go ahead. Lady, I know she said that her neighbors, knows that she's a Christian, she said, Yes, one of them. Will you walk my dog when I'm me out of here. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Will you walk my dog when, when the Lord raptures me out of here? So she knows the dog ain't coming. Yeah. And she knows that the neighbor ain't coming. Might as well let the neighbor have. That's a very good one. I like that. I will tell you that the, the finest speaker, his theology is good too, but the finest speaker I've ever heard is the guy that preached here in Sarasota at the Tabernacle for years and years and years, Neville Grit. Okay, if you ever want to hear just water on your ears, it's not deep theology, G-R-I-T-T. It's not deep theology, but it's very nice theology. It's, 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 it, it sounds good. It's a beautiful oration, and he loved the Word of God. He's the only person that I ever knew 
that preached the entire Bible. Over 3,000 sermons he preached, and he did it from Genesis through Revelation. And now he sits at home, he still hasn't died, and he's had Parkinson's for years, and he can't do anything except think on the Word of God. And when you go speak to him, he will say, cherish the Word, be careful with the Word, handle the Word properly. That's all that he cares about in somebody's life is that, okay? He said to me one time, we were talking about things that may have bothered us a little bit. And I'll tell you why I talked to him. I didn't know him. I preached at a a funeral. My friend's daughter died. And so I I grew up with him. And so they asked me to speak at the funeral, and I did. And the next day, I got a friend request from Neville Gritt, who was in the congregation. And I said, I've never made a New Year's resolution, resolution in my life. Never have, and I've never done it since, but I've made one. And I said, I'm going to get to know Neville Gritt. And so I started going to his house. I asked permission, and they said yes. And so I went over there, and I got to know him. And he, uh, he, we were talking one time, and he says, well, what is it that bothers you? And I said things like the dog thing. He says, dogs. He said, <laughs> I had a family ask me that question, and I told them what the Bible says. And they got mad, mad and they left over dogs, right? They, they left the congregation. That's because people let their emotions dictate their theology. Well, I'm not, I don't care about what he says. He's a good preacher, and he's telling the Word of God. All I care about is that I'm angry at him because and they, their emotions dictate it. I had somebody email me about something this past week that happened in this Bible class last week. And they were mad at me. Or I don't know if they were mad at me about it, but they questioned what I was doing in a particular issue. And I haven't slept all week. Every single night I've woken up over this. And yet the same issue was addressed by about 40 other people. I'm not going to say what the issue is. All 40 of them, all 40 of them were in agreement on this. And one person was not in agreement. And it's the one person that you lose sleep over because you care. These things actually matter. And so it bothers me, okay? And so all of these people, and I thought to myself, you know, if there's one person that doesn't agree with this, maybe the problem is in what they're thinking, Okay, I don't mean to be angry at anybody. That's not my intent. I want people to know this word and to have sound theology and not presuppositions and not to get caught in all kinds of extraneous stuff that is unimportant. Okay, Neville Grit, dogs. Okay, it's not the issue of the Bible. The issue of the Bible is the redemption of man. The redemption of man contains two major categories, Jew and Gentile. Okay, I don't know why I got off on such a tangent there for the past couple of minutes about Neville Grit, but it was an important part of my life. It was the most wonderful thing in my time in Christ was getting to know that man. And I have to say one thing. It's not that you don't own a dog. I own eight dogs, and I love every yeah, one of them. He owns eight dogs. I have one that sits <laughs> under my arm when I type the sermons, when I come home. You, you ought to see Hidako, I take out a couple of them in the morning, and then we take all of them out together. And then before she leaves, she takes them all out one more time because she loves to play with the dogs, and she takes them out. This dog, Blessing, who I got from the projects, right? She wants to be with Dad. And every day, Hidako's adamant, Blessing, you got to go in the kitchen with the other dogs. And what she does is she, she – my desk is here, and I'm sitting here facing the computer, and she'll back up. And she, like, here, here comes mom. And she'll say, come on, blessing. And she'll back up a little further. And then mom, she'll finally say, okay, well, you take care of her. It happens every single day. This dog wants to be with dad. It's the only one that loves me. All the rest of them, they started with me. Tom knows. He's with me when I picked up almost all of them from the projects, right? All chihuahuas. He sees them. They come home with me, and they love me for four or five days. And then 
Oh, she's feeding us. She's, and so they all love her, except Blessing. So she sits under my arm while I'm typing the sermons or when I'm doing the prophecy update or when I'm doing anything. When I sleep, she's there with me. When I go downstairs at 12 to sleep, finish the night on the couch, she comes down with me. She's always with me. I, I love that dog. Because, you know, somebody oh, yeah. My word's wrong. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah, right. I love, dogs. I love dogs. I love them. I, I, I hope that whatever the Lord does with them, I've got my trust that his hands will take care of those dogs. That's judge of all the earth do what is right. He will do what is right. That's absolutely right. It's not for me to worry about though. My worry is to tell people about Jesus and to have them not get emotional. I, I This is one thing I'd like you all to remember. remember. I've said this in some of the prayers on Facebook and I say it from time to time in the devotionals. I don't think I've said it in the Bible class. We are to not let our emotions drive our theology. We are to let our theology drive our emotions. We should be broken at the cross of Christ. We should be rejoicing in what Christ has done for us. We are to let our theology drive our emotions. And everything will be right. But if we let our emotions drive our theology, everything will be wrong. Everything. Okay? So, let's go on. Um, we still have 15 minutes, so we've got to get our first verse done. Um, uh, for in 9.1, Paul begins with, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. What he will relate to us is either truth or it is a lie. That's it. He said it, so it's either one or the other. If it is a lie, then nothing else he has said can be held as reliable either. That brings me to the point I had somebody email me yesterday, and I, I every time I bring this subject up, I lose people on the Prophecy Update probably lose them here. It doesn't matter to me. I'm not here to make my theology so that people will listen. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 2 in our daily devotionals right now, right? Oh, yeah. What is prohibited in 1 Timothy chapter 2? Women, women, women preaching and teaching. I do not allow women to preach, teach, or have authority over a man, right? I'm not going to change on that. That's what the Bible says. He, he confirms it elsewhere, and then in chapter 3, he is going to continue to substantiate that, right? I had a lady email me about that, and she says, I'm in a Pentecostal church, and uh, there are women pastors over me, and I don't feel comfortable with that. And I said, you shouldn't. And I said, I want you to go back and I want you to read because they're right there on that. We've been going through it. I said, perfect time for you to do this. Read these and you'll understand why you feel uncomfortable about it. Because the word of God does not allow it. Okay? And if the word of God does not allow it, and we take that out, that one line, then we can take out every other line that we don't like in the Bible. And it's the same thing from the other end. If Paul said one lie then every other line that Paul says is now suspect, and it doesn't matter because it becomes pick-and-choose theology. We cannot take the Word of God and say, I'm going to take this line out. Or I'm going to take the book of Acts, which is descriptive, which says that there were deaconesses and seven uh, daughters of, uh, what's his name, that Philip. Philip, that prophesied. And so that is my marching orders. It's a descriptive book saying what happened at the beginning of the church, and there's a reason, and we went through all of that. It's not recorded, so I'm sorry, but... Paul's letters, those 13 letters, are church doctrine. That is it. That is our church doctrine. Everything else is a vast sum of knowledge, which is useful, profitable for teaching the man of righteousness. And, uh, you, know, you know, the verse 2 Timothy 3.16. But they've got to go. They're not mad. They're just, they have uh, somewhere they have to go to. So, but you should have stood up and said, we're out of here. That's what you should have done. We love you. Have a nice night and drive safely. All right. Take care. So, um, anyway, I don't remember what I was saying, but... Um, uh, we cannot take verses out of the Bible, and we cannot 
assume that Paul, anything he says is incorrect. It is all or it is none. Paul is not lying. He's telling the truth, okay? So, um, if it is a lie, then nothing else he has said can be held as reliable. Nothing. In other words, his words here are either an anchor, which holds fast for the entire epistle, or they are the cunning deception of a man who desired to pull his audience into the depths of a raging ocean, which is exactly what the Jehovah's Witnesses do. It's what the Mormons do. Think of an ocean out there that's raging, and they say, come on out here. It's safe out here. That's what he would be doing if he's lying. He's trying to get people trapped into his personal theology so that he can have sway over them. He didn't do that, okay? I'm bleeding again. Doggone it. Um, but I, I cut my hand cutting some trees today, and it just keeps... Uh, anyway, by invoking the title of Christ in his vow, he is making a claim that Christ is, in fact, God. That's one thing that we're going to see implicitly in Paul's writings again and again. People say, well, Jesus isn't God. He couldn't make a vow in Jesus' name if, if he didn't believe that he was God, okay? Mm -hmm. This can be determined from the Old Testament, of which he once served as a Pharisee. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, it says, You shall fear the Lord and serve him, and shall take oaths in his name, okay? Only in his name. You are not to take oaths in any other name. Some people say, well, this is very common, like the Mennonites, you'll hear them say this. Certain groups of people will say, I don't take oaths. The Bible doesn't allow me. It doesn't say that at all. It says you shall take oaths, but you should take them in the name of the Lord. Okay, people say, well, I won't swear on the Bible in church I, I, or in court. Christians that have just been misled on that particular doctrine. It does not teach that. You are to take your oaths, and this is where you take your oaths, on this book that is written by this God, okay, and in the name of that God. Jehovah of the Old Testament is Jesus. I, on the name of Jesus Christ, take my oath, and that's what he's doing, okay? So you, you are to take oaths, but only in the name of the Lord. If you take an oath in any other name, what are you doing? Idolatry. That's absolutely right. Because you are placing something on the level of authority with God. It is idolatry to say, I swear on my mother's grave. It's idolatry to say, I swear by President Trump. You don't swear by anything except the Lord, because he is the only ultimate authority. And so your vow is either completely true, or you are completely condemned by your vow. Okay? That's, that's the idea of making a vow in the name of the Lord. So, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. By invoking Christ in Romans 9, verse 1, he's either blaspheming the name of the Lord Jehovah, which he isn't doing because he was a Pharisee, and that would have been the highest crime in all of Judaism, in all of Israel, would be for him to do what he just did. The highest crime. There is no higher crime that he could commit than doing that. Or... He is claiming that Jesus is the incarnate word of God. He is Jehovah in the flesh. After claiming the truth in Christ and affirming it, he reaffirms it by calling on the Holy Spirit as a witness to his conscience. What does that mean? The Holy Spirit is God, is God right? That's all there is to it. He, he wouldn't be doing it otherwise. He's not an active force that the Jehovah's Witnesses say. He's God. <clears throat> He's the third member of the Trinity. Okay, the matter which he will state is of such importance to him that he has brought the very fellowship of the spirit who resides in him into the matter. Okay, in essence, either I am crazy, 
I'm completely nuts, or the Spirit testifies to the truth as a witness along with me. It's one or the other, okay? What he's going to say in the book of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, is the absolute truth as he sees it. What we have to do is determine what he is saying. I will at times give you various opinions on the verses that we're going to look at, okay? But for the most part, for the most part, I'm going to give you the dispensational model. I'm going to tell you that Paul was a dispensationalist because Jesus is a dispensationalist. He is God, and he set out the dispensations of time. But I would hope, and I'm serious about it, I would hope that you would read the other views and that you would think about it and think which makes sense based on your knowledge of the rest of the Bible. And if you don't have a knowledge of the rest of the Bible, what are you to do? Get a knowledge of the rest of the Bible. Okay, please read your Bible. Please, this is, this is it. She's here. You love the Prophecy Updates, right? She emailed me, and she lived right down the road. She said, Prophecy Updates. Those mean absolutely nothing unless we are following the correct pattern of the Bible. Because Prophecy Update to R.C. Sproul is completely irrelevant, right? Completely. So why would we watch Prophecy Update if it's not correct theology? Okay? Why would we do that? All right? Everybody here has got their own place that we met and that we started talking to each other about the Lord. And every one of you should be reading your Bible and getting closer to what the Lord says. So that when you listen to a sermon, you say, you know what, Charlie, I think I'd like you to reconsider that or something. Okay? And then I'm not going to be mad at you. I'm going to go home and I'm not going to sleep for a week. All right? That's just what, because I really take these things personally. I want people to not be caught up in legalism. I want especially not to get caught up in liberalism, where this isn't the word of God. But at the same time, I'll be like, all right, you know, why can't they see that? And then I will be evaluating the entire week. I will be evaluating. Even though I'm like a little miffed at it, I'm going to be evaluating it. So anyway, we'll go on. Um, by invoking the name of Christ, we read that. Life application. We're just going to be done. We've got one verse done, and that's good. Because it was a good opening. We got, we got this information. And that would, you have to know that to understand why somebody would have a different view on Israel. If you don't understand why Israel was considered out, why the Jews were considered out, then of course you have no idea what's going on as far as why wouldn't they believe that? They're so stupid, right? And as I said, people today, I think, have no excuse. I think they have no excuse. But the people of the past had an excuse. They had a reason. It's because blindness in part means blindness in part. There is a reason why God did this. It wasn't a cosmic error and a bunch of stupid theologians, John Wycliffe and, and John Huss and, uh, you know, John Knotts and all these people. They were in their little areas and they got out a little bit and they did their studying and there was no Jews and everything was Christian. Okay, so that's why these things happen. There is a reason for it. Today, it is different. I can't understand people that aren't willing to check at least. Okay, so life application. Jesus as well as the apostles after him, tell us to let our yes be yes and our no be no. In other words, let our words be of such weight that when we speak, those around us will know that they are the truth. At times, however, a matter may be of such importance that we must invoke God in our words. Invoking anything less than God is idolatry. Let us never flippantly invoke God's name, and let us never invoke anything in creation when we make a vow. Okay? All right, let me, uh, oh, I'll do that in a second. We're going to, we're a couple minutes early today, but I'm not starting verse 9 too. We'll get, we'll probably get four or five verses done next week, and I don't want to apologize, but I just want to justify why I went through what I did today. 
So I hope it was a productive it was, class. It was good. It was and, good. All right. We'll go on. We'll say a prayer. And we'll uh, just thank you, Lord, for how good you have been to us. We pray for safe travels back for Jim. And uh, we pray that he's nice and warm up there in the cold country. And we pray, we certainly pray for some rain with this front that's coming through in the next day. It's been a little dry here, Lord. And you know, the sandy soil just uh, lets it run right through. So we would pray that your hand of grace would be upon us. And we would also pray that our heaters would be working in the next few days. We've got the air conditioner on today, and that'll be changing. And we pray that people will be healthy, not uh, not afflicted with flu or anything because of the change in the weather, and that uh, uh, you would help my feet to not get cold while I'm out working. Uh-huh. Lord, we thank you for uh, the many blessings of this life. Again, we raise up Paul, our dear brother, and we pray that he will have a good meal tonight and be able to hold down his food. That Elaine will get good rest and that uh, they will be in comfort and peace as they uh, seek you in their hearts and in their minds. Lord, we love you. You are so good to us. We thank you for this uh, chance to meet here. We uh, pray that the uh, service at the end of the week will be edifying to people. And we just want to give you all of the praise that you're due because you are infinitely worthy of it. We pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Okay, it's backing up. It's going to be backed up in just a second. Hang on, hang on. Okay, everybody give a goodbye to everybody out there. We love you so much. Have a nice week, okay? I have a, a membership to Spanish Oh, is that right? I I loved, I used to have a membership with them for years, and then I, I let it go, and I wish I didn't, so I'll have to redo it. Did but you know I've you got, can bring dogs there now? We walk our dogs there. I didn't know that, but I wouldn't bring any of mine because they're so vicious, they'd probably attack everybody. No, not really. <laughs> They've got all the ranch they need. Yeah, really, they do. They All eight of them, I let them all out before I came here, and they were running around in circles. and themselves out in a tiny little space. Tiny little spot. My mom and I used to